You're listening to WTF 2050. What's Tasmania's future? Thirty years goes like that. I wonder. We've actually shown we can do these sorts of things without risk. There was nothing. Hello. Hello. <laughs> And welcome to What's Tasmania's Future 2050. I'm Leanne Minshall. And I'm Anna Bateman. On this episode, our second episode, we talk to Joe Cook and Jess Robbins, two seriously smart women who have some very good ideas around our food. Before we get to that, we've been getting some questions about why we're focusing on 2050, why 30 years. And if you look back 30 years, you'll realise just how quickly time goes and just how fast things can change. Yeah, God, it was 30 years ago, three decades, that the High Court blocked their decision to build the Franklin Dam and Australia Fair became our national anthem, which is something we'll have to pop on the to-do list because that is a rubbish national anthem. Well, we probably will, Anna, and that's looking back 30 years and what's changed. And if you think about it, it took 120 years for the spool just to get outside of Europe. It's taken 14 years for Facebook to completely permeate every corner of the globe. Change going forward is going to be quicker. Thanks, Leanne. So let's get into this week's interview. Jo Cook is the curator of the Dark Mofo Winter Feast and her good mate Jess Robbins works with Glispa, the Global Island Partnership. Um, we met at Jess's place, which is a beautiful old cottage um, which has a low ceiling. So we started by asking them when the house was built. 1820s. 1820s. With original 1820s floorboards. It is absolutely yeah, stunning. stunning. I love, I love the way the bricks and the walls, and for the listener, were all a bit skew whiff. There is not a single straight line, and if you're over about Sounds five like foot seven, you will knock your head on the doorways. So, <laughs> yeah. I How have to duck. You, Joe? I'm 5'11. Oh, yeah. yeah. You would have to duck. Yeah. See, I love the old houses because they were actually built for people my height. Yeah, no, I feel quite tall in this house. So. How tall are you? <laughs> I'm five foot four. Yeah, well, you are tall, darling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. So I've been living in Hobart for 24 years now. So I came down um, 93 for a two-week holiday. I'm from Sydney and I was living in Byron Bay and friends would come and visit me that were at art school here and they just kept talking about how amazing Tasmania was. So I was hearing things about abalone and crayfish and people having baths in, you know, beautiful clawfoot baths in the garden with fires under them and things like that. So I just thought it sounded like such an amazing place. So I came down for a two-week holiday. And when they picked me up from the airport, we went straight to Coles Bay. So in front of the hazards, we just stayed in this beautiful shack. Friends went diving, pulled up abalone. I was 23 years old. I'd never seen abalone. I was from Sydney, you know, grew up with meat and three veg. I was a young, enthusiastic chef, but I didn't start cooking until I was 21. Yeah, and then we went down to Southport on a crayfishing boat, and so I had crayfish for the first time. Then we went back up to town, and this friend took me out to Lake Pedder to collect honey from the hives. You know, I'd never seen beehives, I hadn't seen cat honey, and, and that was it. Like, that was three days, my first three days in Hobart, and I just thought, this place is amazing, I'm going to stay. So then I started looking for a job straight away. Then I had a great opportunity to open or take over a restaurant that had kind of failed in Salamanca. Um, named it, cleaned the kitchen, scrubbed it out, started a new menu and took over 
what had been a restaurant and a pub, so it was two floors. We started dancing in the restaurant, turning it into a nightclub. We had a 24-hour licence. Jess came along and started working in the kitchen with me. That was 20 years ago. Yeah, about 1998, where I was uh, pretty young at the time. So I've just turned 18, I think, and Joe was kind enough to give me my first job and, I guess, real opportunity in kitchens. Fortunately for me, in a way, Joe got really sick shortly after my trial week. <laughs> I'm not sure if you remember this. Yeah. I tried out for like a week and then Joe got really sick and yeah. wasn't able to manage the kitchen and so I was basically thrown into the deep end. It was quite stressful indeed, yes. It was a, quite a bit of a panic. I think the actually more stressful moment was the night that Joe came back from being sick <laughs> <laughs> and then realising that I actually had to try and perform in front of her and everything went freaking wrong. Like, I mean, literally yeah. halfway through service, the gas ran out. Uh, I think that things were prepped like kind of a bit crazily, but anyway, it was pretty funny. But then after that, and after she didn't fire me on the spot, then she actually trained me for the next few months and it was a fantastic education in food. And hilariously, actually, then many years later, I understood you know, some of those really essential learnings that things that are unique to Tasmania that aren't as normal in other places, things like, you know, going down to the Hamongs at the farmer's market or the Salamanca to pick up our fresh veggies and, you know, having a strong relationship with some of the ab divers that would come in and we would just cook our, perhaps our own meals and swap them on a steak or something. <laughs> um, or, uh, you know, there was just a really good relationship between the other restaurants in town and some of the producers and stuff. So it was always a really great opportunity to learn about food and something that was really unique and special about mm. Tassie. Do you think that connections helped build the food culture that Tasmania's got? And do you think that type of connection still exists in the industry? I think it does, definitely. If you are a respected and a great chef today, you know completely where your food is from. Mm. And that is the challenge of being a really great chef, is understanding what's in season and only cooking what's around you. Back then, we used to have people come from Slow Food and have dinners at the restaurant. And so it took me a while for the penny to drop of what that movement actually was. So for a while there, you know, it was Bert Shug, who's now making amazing gin. He was um, wearing a bow tie. They bought fancy wine. I just thought it was like a posh dining club. And then as we got to know him and his family became great regulars at the restaurant, the penny dropped with what slow food movement was and that it is about eating in season and respecting food that's unique to place. I mean, today, if you're not doing that in a restaurant, then, you know, you're not going to survive. People have a very high expectation of mm. coming to Tasmania and eating what we produce. In New York, the farm to table is very much a trend. It's only something that's new and emerging. And so coming back to Tasmania, it's just so much more of a, a way of life and an institution. So it's quite fascinating to see the differences of where food has come over that last, you know, 20, 30 years or so. So most people here at least know somebody who hunts, like they might, you know, shoot venison and get wallabies and mm -hmm. you know most people know someone who fishes and dives and gets abalone and crayfish and plenty of people grow their own food 
And so people just have come over and they go, Oh, I bought you some lemons from my garden, or I bought you some green gauge plums, or here's a fish I caught. Like, that's, you know, I've never had that in any other city. No, Mm -hmm. neither have I. So, yeah, there's a beautiful connection with food here. You know, we're pretty spoiled, it's very easy to eat well. So you are in charge of the Dark Mofo Winter Feast? Yeah, that's my main job. Can you talk me through a little bit of your history with that? Yeah, so it started in 2013 and the Winter Feast was an element of Dark Mofo. So the concentration of Dark Mofo is is music and art and performance and theatre and experience. And this food side of it was um, like a bacchanalian feast to celebrate the longest night. And my role was looking after local businesses and creating the local food content. We partnered with Hobart City Council and they were helping us facilitate the feast. So their taste team worked with us. And so we were getting to know the council crew and having drinks. And one of them said to me, you do realise this will be the end of your career. Because um, he thought my ideas were so out there and the way we were approaching this event was just not going to fly. My mood immediately dropped and I remember going home and I just couldn't sleep that night. I just thought, wow, am I missing something here? (laughs) Because I suppose it's like when I started the restaurant, I just always have this ridiculous enthusiasm and think, how can we possibly fail? (laughs) This is going to be great. (laughs) So what were the ideas that he was reacting to like that? Well, I suppose because I was setting rules with storeholders that were really quite specific to every single dish. So where are the ingredients from? Are they ethically sourced? First and foremost, it had to be delicious. So, you know, winter is a really scarce time for produce. So then it's about getting creative with that. And so then I started growing into my role a bit more and bringing chefs in with the very clear instruction that you'll be cooking with Tasmanian seasonal winter produce and then teaming them up with producers and partnering them with a local chef. So then they just had to be creative, the guest chef. So they kind of got buddied up. I was like, don't think about it till you get here. I just want you to be creative around what our local chefs and producers show you that we've got and then you design something you know mostly if these chefs have a really great experience then they just head off back to the mainland and rave about how great Tassie is. Well it's not like the um the midwinter feast is struggling is it like it hasn't exactly stopped your career. No it's amazing. It went from like 30,000 people at the winter feast over three nights in 2013 In 2017, we had 100,000 people at the Winter Feast over seven nights. I think that the the chefs that would have come and had that experience, not only would they have left being really inspired about Tasmania and Tasmanian produce, they would have also taken away that ethos around how important it is to eat local and how important it is to be creative with what's around you. So I think it's that double instilling of some really important lessons yeah yeah and presumably they enjoyed that challenge yeah it well you know it's like going to the cupboard and just going okay what do we got let's cook which is what i love about tazzy and shack cooking you know it's okay what did we catch what have we got what can we my cousin calls that kitchen survivor (laughs) (laughs) it's my favorite way to cook definitely (laughs) so how do you two work together 
So uh, I've just returned back to Tasmania about one year ago after 10 years living in New York and working for what's called the Global Island Partnership. But when I returned, then Joe and I had started catching up and we ran into each other down at Hamlet uh, one day for a coffee and Joe invited me onto the Slow Food Hobart Committee. Yeah, so it was really great after, you know, many years doing different things to come back to Tassie and... So explain a little bit what Glispa is because it's quite fascinating. So essentially it's this partnership led by leaders from islands, so in Palau, in, in the Caribbean, in the Indian Ocean and Pacific. And so essentially it brings together a whole group of people to really focus on how to promote and take action to support island leadership in sustainable development. It's really about supporting a number of different islands like Hawaii, Fiji, the British Virgin Islands to really uh, take forward action in sustainability. So interestingly in Hawaii, for example, that they've got a very progressive government and they've got this whole partnership that's formed locally, which are really helping the government to take action on six locally set targets, which include things like local food production, watershed management, etc., as being really core to their sustainable and strong, I guess, economic growth. Yeah, so then when I heard what Jess had been doing while she was away and that she'd moved back, I roped her into joining us as we're a bunch of volunteers on the Slow Food Committee. And so we do things like hold events through the year to raise money, to send a young chef to Italy, to Saloni del Gusto, which is the biggest food festival in the world. We partner them with producers, they do workshops, um, they contribute to Slow Food in Australia to a stand where they make an Indigenous dish. It might be wallaby and warrigal greens and pepperberry, things like that. So they go and network then hopefully be blown away which you know so far has been the case and then come back and we partner with TAFE with Drysdale's with the hospitality school there so then they come back and do a couple of dinners with the students and share that enthusiasm and that knowledge that they've learned so it really is about instilling the slow food values to um, the younger crew and so I thought you know it'd be great for Jess to be part of that with all her sustainability knowledge. And we also support school kitchen gardens. So every year we give money to six different schools to support their school kitchen gardens. Do you reckon any of the GLISPA knowledge or lessons or vision could be transported onto Tasmania? You know, we've got this kind of idea as Tasmania becoming a little progressive Trojan horse for the rest of Australia. Absolutely. I think there's a real movement of islands around the world really understanding and valuing the fact that as an island we're actually really unique and we're all different, not only from a biodiversity standpoint where you know a lot of our flora and fauna is obviously really unique, but also in terms of being a model for sustainable development. So as a smaller community and an isolated geographic area, we can really have more accelerated change more rapidly. So we can really be a role model to others around the world, to other states in Australia, to other islands, to other countries, about how it is that we can really move forward sustainably. We already see that Tasmania is such an amazing leader in many, many aspects in being able to cultivate really unique and different foods and create these amazing collaborations that are being internationally regarded. 
And then in terms of Tasmania, say, being part of GLISPA, the more that different islands partner together, mm. the stronger there is this momentum to show how there's change and there's a willingness to really be sustainable and develop really strongly. So, yeah, I think that Tasmania can both contribute a lot internationally for what we're doing, but also share and learn with a lot of different islands and countries internationally. You're listening to WTF 2050. What's Tasmania's future? So, you know, our project is looking at, like, we fast forward 30 years. Have you guys thought about what it would be in 30 years? Is there anything that yeah. you think? Okay. Well, 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 the education around food is just the norm. So from kindergarten through to university, imagine if every schooling institution had their own food system. So part of their learning is growing food, it's harvesting food, it's cooking it, but it just is the norm. So that's compulsory, it's what you do, and you're producing the food that is for feeding everyone around you. So all the learning that comes out of that from very early on, maybe by the time you get to university, then it becomes a bit more specialised so that all the people who aren't interested, they've learnt all that through school, they've learned how to cook, they know how to grow food, they know what to do with everything. They've had this education and upbringing of eating really, really well. When we think about food, it's such a hugely encompassing piece of our lives. From how you know food is produced, the impact it has on how we manage water, to the different species that we're actually producing as part of our core diets, to you know the engineering of it. There's so many avenues of different jobs and industry that are actually really related to our food systems. Having that hands-on experience from when you are a kid, playing around with you know growing your first seedlings and getting to taste your first cucumber from the garden and it leaves you with that sort of footprint about how amazing it is. But then accelerate to when you're at university level or something, then if you're still involved in those community gardens and really engaged in how you produce food, it really does shift what we're doing currently. I mean, how many university students currently would just go down to the supermarket? Buy uh, pot noodles. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Two-minute noodles and Instant maybe some... macaroni cheese. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, you know, we've all, we've all done it. If it was just part of our schools, it would be that, that everyday experience for everybody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and imagine the joy, you know, that comes with that and the better eating, the better experiences, the challenges, you know, the, there's so much learning in it. You know, there's beautiful lanterns where they farm scallops in and Melshell on the east coast farm all their oysters in in um, the, the long the lanterns, yeah, that hang yeah. underwater. So they're not an eyesore, you can't see them, they're all underwater. And, you know, kelp forests that are filtering the water and we're eating and harvesting kelp. And there's, on the sea floor, there's sea cucumbers that by 2050, we educate ourselves through flavour that, well, Mm. they're delicious. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And they're clean. A delicacy, you know, they're filtering the the sea floor. And And this is totally doable. Why aren't we doing it now? That's right. And it reconnects us so much, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. With everything around us, not just food, but as you said, how it's grown, the environment, where we fit in. 
We're incorporating seaweed into more food production, so sea vegetables, turning it into pasta, turning it into noodles, yeah. you know, drying yeah. it, having it with sushi and eating a ton more shellfish, so more mussels, more scallops, more oysters that are all cleaning the waters as well as nutritious, as well as ethically, apparently they don't feel pain, you know, so eat loads of mussels, all good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But also I think that finding that balance with nature, I mean, through the last 30 years or 50 years with the industrialization of food, we really lost touch with a lot of the traditional methods about how we really produced and achieved balance within our environmental systems. And so now over the last 20 years, we're getting more focus on that. But I think towards 2050, I'd love to see the fact that we're really valuing our Indigenous knowledge about how our native species were used for agricultural purpose and farmed, how that they were managed in balance with each other so that you're not taking too much, that you're ensuring that different species work together. Is it Angasi? Am I pronouncing Angazi, it? Angazi. Yeah. Angazi. The that, native oyster. Yes, yeah. aren't they supposed to be more resilient to POMS disease and things? Yeah, like they are. As far as I know, they're only just working out how to farm them. How to you know, them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And like Jess is talking about native foods, you know, mm. to have that respect and that learning from the first people of Australia would just be the norm. So, you know, yeah. through our schooling system... I didn't know that they farmed and harvested daisy yams all over the country and that, you know, they're seven times more nutritious than a potato and growing alongside things like kangaroo grass. It can be dried and ground into a grain with the kangaroo grass. What is daisy yam? What does it look like? It's called murnong and so it's a green plant with a yellow flower and then it's got a root system. So you can eat the greens and the root system. I was listening to Bruce speak at Rootstock in Sydney and he was saying it can grow to a metre beneath the soil. Right. And so it grows in really soft soil and then as soon as they put sheep on that land, it trampled it's root and stock compressed. like woodstock and it's all about veggies? Or... <laughs> it's about the rootstock of wine. Okay. So it's a natural wine festival in Sydney, but it's got a really big focus on food. Okay. And so, yeah, I don't go there for the wine, believe it or not. I'd go there to hear people like Bruce Pascoe speak about um, yeah, Indigenous And can you get and... daisy yams in Tassie still? It's been lost, and so there have been possible campaigns to start growing it again because it could be a valuable crop. Mm, yeah. Part of what we're doing too is like building on the strengths. So <laughs> what are the strengths that Tasmania has got? What characteristics make it easier to do here than, you know, if you were saying to me, let's do this in New South Wales, I think I'd just feel I'd be so overwhelmed. Yeah, I'd say, look, I I really hope you get on with this. I wouldn't be saying, we. Yeah, so what is it? What's in Tassie? What do you think? For starters, in terms of the how we connect together, we really have an amazing sense of community here. From what Joe was saying in terms of the connection between our producer to the chef, etc um and really strong community groups like you know slow food is one of them uh, planning matters to to many groups are really active and there's really passionate people that are really doing things and we do have a lot of free available space 
Well, even in the centre of Hobart, we can look out the window and see green hills and all this unused space. Mm. There's plenty of empty buildings where we could have hydroponics growing leafy green vegetables and herbs and things. You'd like to see neighbourhood community kitchens where people are all cooking together and there's big green corridors through the streets of orchards and fruit growing and free public fruit for people to access. But then maybe there's people in the community that have jobs where they have to deal with that fruit. So it's actually managed properly and nothing's wasted and everything's either cooked or fermented and distributed. And how can we bring together our young people with our older generations? How can we make sure that there's that connection or co-responsibility to sort of help to look after each other and educate each other? Yeah, new migrants coming in or new people in general just coming in. How can you really participate and be part of something? So imagine if you've been through an education system where you absolutely know the seasons and know what to eat when and how to grow and cook and look after people. So then people who are at risk of being homeless or maybe for really low rent, you can have students living with the elderly, you know, cooking for them, looking after them. And But it's cool too because Tasmania, we quite often hear people saying, oh, we've got too many aged people here. And as a woman of a certain age, I'm starting to find that a little bit tough. Challenging. Challenging. But really what you're talking about, we start to look at older people as an asset rather than a drain. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Yeah, so people who've got two spare bedrooms that maybe are only used when their kids come from the mainland for a visit once a year or something rather, the rest of the time they're housing young people. And also passing on those skills like you were talking about, you know, the people that know what the seasons are and know what food grows and just has that knowledge that's kind of been lost over a couple of generations. Yeah. Or put on hold. I think it's great. Brilliant. Yeah. All right. We have to get it done. Oh my God, that is such a good idea and such an obvious idea. And I've got to say, look, I've been living here 18 months and I don't think I've ever lived anywhere where you go to dinner or to somebody's place and it's constantly, here's the tomatoes I grew in the garden, here's the homemade limoncello. And on that note, we had a dinner for our core WTFers a month or so ago. A meal made for us by Philip LeBang, owner of A Tiny Place, which is a super cute little restaurant in Hobart. And several amazing Tassie food people also donated to our dinner. The Longley Organic Farm provided some great fresh produce, topfish taz, vermeil's meats and my personal favourite, Pooley's wines. They were very yummy. I've found a new best friend. (laughs) (laughs) Next week on WTF, the 2018 Tasmania of the Year, Scott Rankin. He grew up on a junk in Sydney Harbour and came to Tassie in his 20s to found Big Heart, one of the nation's leading arts companies. Here's a little bit. When you get to 2050, if we can really cotton onto the privilege of the dramaturgy of the geography, how it forms communities here, what it allows us to do in terms of size and scale and access to governments, etc. If we can get hold of that, then make the whole island the campus and think of ourselves generously beyond the island walls Mm. we can be the R&D incubator for the country Mm. and for the world and that's a shift in our thinking from the isolationist inward looking give us some free highways no you can't have any of our power (laughs) that's the turnaround we need and it sits within the um, intellectual property of being a maker with your brain and a maker with your hands to me that's part of 2050 
WTF 2050 is hosted by me, Anna Bateman. And me, Leanne Minshall. We are supported by the Australia Institute and all of our excellent music and post-production is by Fletcher Babb. Extra recording, Michael Shelley at The Green Room in Hobart. Please subscribe and rate us on iTunes and follow the conversation on Facebook, Twitter and at our website, wtf2050.org.au. Thank you.